Justice Tech Pros here. Hope everyone is doing well in light of the uh, pandemic that is unfortunately taking place. It's actually pretty concerning, especially in uh, my part of the uh, area, which is Westchester County. Uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's a lot to be a little bit concerned about. Especially, you know, when you have a family and children to worry about. So I just hope everybody's taking the proper precautions and doing what's necessary to keep themselves safe and keep their family safe. You know, with uh, things like that are uh, a bit of an eye-opener. You know, you see, when you see something like that taking place, it does co cause concern. So, you know, I just, again, hope everybody's doing all right with that. I know Italy's in really, really, uh, I mean, it's it's unfathomable what's going on over there. Uh, pretty much a whole country shut down. And now New York's getting hit pretty hard, specifically the Westchester region. Getting a lot of cases. And all you could hope is eventually it'll, it'll die down and people are taking the necessary precautions. Uh, as far as washing hands, you really got to avoid handshaking nowadays. You got to, you know, I don't know, hit with an elbow or fist bump. Even that you got to watch. But it is something to just, you know, keep an eye on, use common sense, and just make sure you keep yourself safe. So I hope everybody's doing that. Anyway, today I wanted to, and you know, prayers and and positive thoughts go out to all those who are directly affected. And I, and I was thinking, on a personal level, you have to really watch now when you go visit loved ones who may be incarcerated. You know, you just have to be very careful because as those who unfortunately experience that know, you're in these confined conditions and there's a lot of people going there and you want to make sure that nothing is being brought in to the jails because that could really be catastrophic. Uh, I could only imagine, God forbid, if an inmate does contract the virus. As we know, the conditions in, in uh, prison are very subpar, so it's, con you know, it's disturbing. If you think about what could happen, what could transpire, if an inmate does wind up with the virus and how it could spread throughout. So it's it's really something to think about. If you are visiting, it may even make you think to avoid visits for a little while and just try to connect uh, via phone, email. I know some jails even have the uh, video conferencing you could do, video phone calls. So you may want to utilize that those options in the interim just till this gets a handle on it. To avoid, if not yourself, to avoid the potential of your uh, loved one who may be incarcerated from contracting anything because it, it'll be quite difficult for them to receive the proper care they would need. So just keep that in mind, you know, as time goes by, maybe something to think about to avoid for a little while, as, as hard as that may be. We obviously all want to, even on a professional level, you want to visit your client on a personal level, you want to visit your friend or family. But you just got to think about that, you know, if that's really the best option right now.
Uh, anyway, today I wanted to um, dive into... Uh, I have two things I wanted to talk about. Uh, one in particular is uh, protective orders and how it relates to the criminal justice system. And I was I was thinking about that and looking at it uh, from an outside perspective and actually from a defending perspective when you're trying to defend your client and also from a pers- uh, exposure aspect. And by exposure sharing information and trying to possibly shed light on things that may be taking place within a case. And what happens is a lot of times with the discovery, the government or the state will put a protective order on the discovery, which basically means they're limiting who has access to that discovery. When the order is issued, it's limitations um, that are put on the discovery, whereas the court only permits certain individuals of the defense team the permission to review the information and go through it. And it's, you know, limited to specific individuals and persons set by the court and by the government. And and I personally see that as as a hindrance in a lot of ways. And I'll explain a little bit about that. And I'll just give you something to think about. A lot of times they'll paint the uh, picture to justify it where they will use the example of there may be, let's say, confidential informants listed within the discovery. And they'll use that umbrella statement or that umbrella rationale to then limit who could view it and who cannot to keep that person's safety at the forefront. Uh, person or, or several people, depending on the case. And I can understand the philosophy behind that. But my um, my issue is that it shouldn't be a blanketed rule then. It should be more specific and more focused on those things. You know, a protective order could be listed where if you are trying to protect somebody or uh, sensitive information, you make it more specific to only those related documents that maybe the government's concerned about or the court's concerned about. It shouldn't be a blanket rule that covers all the discovery because from my experience, by doing that, you're you're truly handcuffing the defense and you're limiting their ability to explore avenues and, and possibly to bring to light lack of evidence and maybe to shine a light on things that may not be up to par and aren't accurate and go against maybe the um, false narrative that's being portrayed when the government does put out press releases or puts out information relating to a case. I mean, I see many times the government will issue these huge press releases and they'll talk about the case, but yet the defense can't really respond because they're tied to the protective order. So if things are inaccurate, there's really nothing they could say about it to get the word out there because of the protective order. So it limits a a lot. Uh, One thing right off the bat where it limits, it limits trying to share information. Say you have a a, uh, a colleague and a fellow attorney who was on a similar case and they have some discovery on their case that could potentially help your client. 
if their case was on a protective order, they cannot share that with you. They have to get the protective order uh, released or lifted, which sometimes doesn't happen. So there may be some important information in their discovery that you didn't get related to maybe a, a, a witness or an informant or evidence that could significantly help your defendant or defendants and you're not allowed to use it. it. It limits the communication between attorneys, whereas they would be able to compare notes and possibly try to help one another on different cases. And I just don't understand that because as we know, you know, the opposition, the state and the government, they're able to use all all different agencies and they're, they're able to compare notes with all different um, individuals who are in the same like line of work as they are, different departments different law enforcement bureaus to coordinate their efforts to try the case and to gather evidence on their end and to charge the defendant. But on the flip side of that, you're saying the defendant can't pretty much do the same thing. You know, they're limited. They're not allowed to talk to other attorneys, past defendants, share information to try to build their case and to try to get the facts and to try to get down to the bottom of things because now they have to adhere to the conditions set by the protective order. And that in and of itself is a huge disadvantage. I mean, if if it's supposed to be a level, level playing field, you would imagine that both sides would be able to use the same set of tools. And if one side has a better arsenal than the other side, right off the bat, that's a huge disadvantage. And yet it happens every day. Um, The cases I've been involved with, 80% of them have had protective orders on them. And there's so many things within within the discovery that you would possibly want to explore more and investigate more and get opinions on and get related attorneys. You know, if you have an attorney that may have been on a similar case and you want to reach out to them and compare their discovery to your discovery to see if there's inconsistencies or contradictions to help your case and to help your client, you can't do that if they're bound by a protective order. And vice versa, you can't help anybody if you have a protective order on your case. And that just doesn't make rational sense to me. And I don't think that's even something that's up for debate. Because like I said, I'm not saying to alleviate a protective order. What I'm saying is is to make it uh, detailed and to make it specific. And you could then plug in any holes or any cause of concern that the government or the state or the court may have where it relates to somebody's safety. Uh, you could omit certain names, things like that. Just make it more specific, not make it a blanket rule where, you know, in regards to all the discovery that you receive. And it's really a, a big disadvantage. You may not think so initially, but when you're going through all the different documents and all the different material and you see related cases or maybe uh, informants that were used that carry over to your case that were possibly on previous cases, and you know it would help tremendously if you could compare the various discoveries from each case to to try to catch inconsistencies and try to catch where things aren't lining up. It would be a huge benefit, obviously. 
you know, uh, especially with the 3500 material. I mean, think about it. If you have a witness who was on five prior cases, relatable cases, and you want to see their 3500, which is all the statements they made with law enforcement, all the, all the sessions that they had with law enforcement, say you want to go through all those and compare them to yours to see if this informant is just tailoring their testimony to fit the defendant. You know, almost like an insert name here. They said the same thing about John Doe. Now they're saying the same thing about Joe Black. You know, it's, um, that's what you want to kind of look at. And you're not able to do that. And who knows what kind of elements could have been exposed if you were allowed to do that. And what kind of false information you could bring to light if you were able to do that. And I think another reason, personally, that it's done is um, a lot of times they don't want the media getting a hold of what is taking place. You know, if you could hand the media, a member of the media say you could hand them the discovery and have them go through it. Just have an outside, unrelated, uninterested party go through it and have them see what you're seeing. If there was lies, if there was inaccurate information given to the grand jury, inaccurate information given to the government, um, agents or law enforcement officials where their statements didn't really line up, and you have media coverage on that, I don't think, you know, obviously they don't want that. That's what makes sense to me. That's one of the main reasons I would think. So say, you know, you have a reporter who wants to investigate a case, and investigate the ins and outs and, and go through, see what kind of cast of characters they're dealing with. They're not able to do that. They can't even look at the case. You, they can only look at whatever's on the public docket. And it really doesn't allow, it doesn't allow exposure. It keeps things shrouded in secrecy. You know, so you really don't know all the facts. The general public will never know all the facts because it can't be shared. So there may be some significant information that if released, it would expose how indictments were obtained without accurate information, how witnesses were untruthful and changed their story during proffer sessions or during when they sat down with law enforcement and gave their statements. None of that will ever come to light, and the public won't see that because they're not allowed to share it. They're not allowed to give it that, that voice that it should have. And to me, uh, fighting on the defense team, it, it would really open up the power of the defense if you're able to brainstorm with past attorneys and past um, discovery information that they received on their cases that may relate to your client because you could really dive in and see what could help and what, what you know is, is irrelevant. That's where I really saw a huge uh, disconnect. You know, in the last case I was on is, I, I know there was previous related cases where certain informants were used, uh, certain people testified, past trials took place, and I knew, you know, just from an educated guess, that there would be inconsistencies based on what I was reading versus what I read on, on public dockets to, pro to pre previous uh, trials. But unfortunately, you can't obtain that information to compare it. You can't obtain 
the discovery. You can't compare the discovery given on a prior case with the same, say, uh, uh, informants or witnesses, or even some of the same evidence, even some of the same logs, say, used by law enforcement, uh, or pictures, or uh, if they try to, a lot of times, you know, the uh, law enforcement will write down um, positions of people. If people are part of a, an alleged enterprise, they'll make notations of what their position is. So now, say you pull three or four cases, and they have the same individual in their notes, with all these different positions, you know, in one in one case they have them in position A, in another case they have them in position B, and in your case they have them in position C. If you were able to compare all that, you could show the inconsistencies and you could show the, the labels and titles that they're trying to give to somebody aren't accurate because they're jumping around. And it almost seems like they use those different things to fit the trial they're dealing with. And when you can, can't compare it to see if it's, if it's a trend or to see if it's something that's steady or something that carries over, you really have no idea. And it's a huge disadvantage that you know the public's not aware of. That I'm sure the regular person doesn't even understand that something like that takes place. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, just to allow listeners to grasp the concept and to acknowledge that, you know, it is a problem and to think about it for themselves if they were on trial and they're not allowed to share the evidence against them, the discovery against them, and they're not allowed to compare related discovery, you know, it could be the difference between being found guilty and being found not guilty and not having that at your fingertips, especially, as I mentioned earlier, when the other side doesn't have that kind of restriction. The other side can coordinate with all the departments they need to, all the divisions they need to, all the districts they need to, without that obstacle. You know, they're all able to compare notes and get on the same page. And the defense isn't allowed to do that. The defense is stonewalled. So, you know, to me, and I think to any logical person who's just looking at that factual-wise, it's a problem. You know, you would figure what's good for one is good for all, and everybody should have the same set of rules. And, and as I, I uh, mentioned, even on the media side, you know, the uh, I know uh, reporters would probably want that. If they're trying to legitimately report on a story, and they want to know the facts of the case, and say there are accusations being made that things were done unjustly, and, you know, in a manner that was not in line with how the law should be, I'm sure that reporter would want to see the backup to that. Anybody could claim things were done unethically or um, not in the manner it should be or lies were made, uh, false narratives were given, misstatements were made. But without the supporting evidence or documentation, it's meaningless. It's just words. And that could be frustrating, you know, if you're trying to if you know you have a, a person who's innocent, you know you have a defendant who's innocent, and you can't really elaborate on how you know how they're innocent, that's really frustrating because you could only really refer to what's on the public docket, and a lot of the discovery doesn't make it to that level. You know, it never, never gets on the public docket because that's what you're given to build your case.
I think that's a process that needs to be changed. And again, the things I talk about, I don't live in a fantasy world. I, I know it'd be, these are things that probably won't get changed. So what I try to do is just expose it, talk about it so the public's aware of it in hopes that maybe one day a juror will listen to this and have that in back of their head and understand that that takes place and factor that in to, you know, their decision-making process when they're watching the trial unfold. All these things help somebody and prepare somebody to be a more educated juror and to understand the ins and outs, not so much in detail, but just to have a general understanding. And that's the key to being a qualified juror. You have to just have a general understanding of how these things work. So you're not going in there blind. You have a basis of what takes place, the limitations that the defendant may face, and the advantages that the state, the government, may have. Because from inception, that hinders the defense. When the defense is unable to exhaust their efforts, that's a hindrance. When you're fighting for your life, in my opinion, you should be granted the ability to exhaust every every avenue that you want to explore and every option that you want to utilize, you should be able to, to implement it and you should be able to investigate it, exploit it, and dissect it. And if you're not able to do that, it's a, a huge disadvantage. And there's really no other way of seeing that, in my opinion. So I really think the protective order issue is something that needs to be changed. It should be more specific. Will that happen? Probably not. But if a listener, or like I said, a juror is aware of it, maybe it could help in the sense that when they're on that jury, this podcast will pop into their head or any, any document. I mean, even if you uh, do some research on it, you'll see how this is an issue, how it is a limitation issue, and how it does put up a wall between the defense team trying to do the best they possibly can for their client. And it limits their investigative efforts. And that's really what builds a, a quality defense, in my opinion, and a quality strategy. You have to make sure your team exhausts all their investigative efforts. Every lead, every question you have, you have to try to get an answer to it. You have to go down a path. You know, as you're going through the discovery, it's almost like it's almost like solving a um, puzzle. You know, you'll get one piece and you need to connect all the other pieces to see if it's something that could help your case. And if you have a lot of missing pieces because you can't explore uh, certain sections, you don't have a complete puzzle. And when you don't have a complete puzzle, obviously you, don't, you didn't do the best you can as a defense team. And the sad part is it's not at, at the fault of the defense team because they may want to go down those roads and they're limited. They, they legally can't. They're bound by a protective order. They're not allowed to share certain information. They're not allowed to see other information. You know, how great would that be if a, uh, a colleague and somebody you know who was a, a trial attorney on a previous case where they used the same set of witnesses or a similar jailhouse informant and they're able just to hand over to you their hard drive with all their discovery and they're able to you know you're able to now compare 
you have a much stronger chance of, of expose if if a person is lying you're exposing it and listen if they're telling the truth what i'm talking about wouldn't affect a strong legitimate case if a case is strong and legitimate and the facts are there the facts are there the, what i'm talking about would only affect cases that are cut and pasted to benefit the you know the goal of convicting a target and not rightfully so, convicting a target by using these kind of methods. If everything's on the up and up, it really wouldn't matter. Because, you know, if I was on the other side of that and I know everything was up and up, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, everybody share whatever they want. This is what took place. These are the facts. Look through whatever you have to look through. It just makes you question why they wouldn't want that and why a protective order would be put on. Because when you think about it, you know, if uh, they're not concerned about somebody comparing 3,500 material and discovery, what would be the big deal to be allowed to do that? Really makes you think, you know, there's something behind that. That's just something that the public needs to open their eyes about and use a little common sense. You know, when something doesn't sit right, there's a reason for it. And that's really something you have to think about as you're evaluating these these cases, regardless of... You know, you're personal biased. And, uh, you know, th that's really what I wanted to kind of talk about regarding that. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that fact when it comes to a protective order and how it does hinder a case. Another um, topic that I found interesting, and I, and I spoke about it previously. I did a segment on it on the grand jury. But what was uh, coincidental was today... Well, I was in my office, I happened to catch a segment of Dr. Phil, and he had a, uh, a wrongfully co convicted individual on his show. And this person just did, I think, 30 years, and he was finally released because the, he was accused of killing his wife. And he was finally released because the individual who did kill his wife confessed. Now, there was just one portion of that that I wanted to play. I recorded it that I found interesting because I, I spoke about this, about the grand jury. And I just found it interesting because you have the lawyer now talking about what they did to get the indictment. And what they did to get the indictment was the officer assigned to the case basically just lied. He made up a statement, gave it to the grand jury, passed it off as fact, nothing to corroborate it. It's just um, something he wrote, something he suggested about the... Uh, about the defendant who was wrongfully convicted. And he got the indictment based on that. Now think about how dangerous that is. And I don't know how people don't grasp that. You could get indicted. And now in this case, this guy was convicted and sent away for 30 years of his life. For something he didn't do. All based on this chain event. Where this law enforcement person. I don't know if he was a detective or what his rank was gave a statement that stated something false. And I'm just going to play that excerpt, and then I'll elaborate on it a little more. Officer here. This is a narrative, and it's signed by Lieutenant Jimmy Colbert. It was determined that Carl Harris left his job at Superfoods sometime around 9 p.m. March 7th, 1990, and went to his home and physically assaulted Tracy Harris. Carl Harris jumped on top of Tracy Harris 
and began choking her until her body went limp. Carl Harris then placed her seemingly dead body into his vehicle and subsequently drove her to the Choctahatchee River and placed her body in the water. He then quickly picked up friend Bobby Herring to begin establishing his alibi. This was made by the lieutenant of cold case unit that handled this case. It's signed and dated. If, and this is the indictment that was served. The only witness listed is James Colbert, the officer that investigated in 2015 that clearly, clearly misled everyone involved by his words. It was determined. That is completely made up. It is bogus. It's not true. I challenge anyone involved to show me any evidence whatsoever that those statements are true. And what's significant about it is, and I don't blame the district attorney. The district attorney is an honorable gentleman. He eventually did the right thing. But when you're fed this kind of information, what else is he to believe? There is absolutely no evidence to support that. No forensic evidence to support it. No eyewitness to support it. Absolutely nothing. And that was submitted to a grand jury for this indictment. Well, that's why they say you can indict a ham sandwich in front of a grand jury. That is so funny you say that. But it's true because it's just one side of the story, and your story goes a hell of a lot better if you're the only one telling it. That's right. Nobody there to say, wait a minute, how do you know that? Where did you get that information? Who corroborates that? All of a sudden, the dialogue kind of dries up. So, Right there, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. Uh, his rank was a lieutenant. But right there you have a lieutenant who pretty much just fabricated, he came up with a complete misstatement, misinformation. There was no witness to it, as you heard the attorney state. Uh, there was no corroborating evidence. He just signed it that that was his statement, and they he obtained an indictment based on that. And then actually Dr. Phil chimed in, which was, you know, exactly what I always say. It's very easy to make a decision when you're only getting one side. There's nobody trying to ask opposing questions. There's nobody trying to jump in and give another way of looking at it. So the jurors on the grand jury side are now rendering an indictment decision to indict, a decision to indict based on misinformation, based on a statement made made by somebody who's lying. If, if that doesn't really shock people, I don't know what will. Somebody lying was the cause of an individual not only getting indicted, but getting found guilty and serving 30 years in prison, which is life-changing. I mean, this guy, there's no, you just ruined somebody's life. The guy was saying he lost his, you know, obviously his wife died, wasn't able to mourn that. His daughter thought he killed her mother, so she he lost the relationship with his daughter. I mean, things you can't get back. Think of how many people that probably passed during his time while he was incarcerated. It's endless. I could go on and on with that guy probably suffered. And then you just get let out as if everything's okay. And all because, the point is all because somebody lied and gave a misstatement on the grand jury. Look how easy it is. So that, that should tell anybody listening alone Regardless of what you may think, if you may, you know, some may feel uh, I have a certain agenda, which I think I try to talk a little logically and neutral as best as I could. Obviously, my opinion comes through many times, but that's just human nature. But I try to explore things from both sides and just look at that from both sides. Say you're a target. 
Say somebody listening just happens to be a target and a, a law enforcement official wants to get you indicted. It's as easy as them lying and writing something down that's completely not true. They could say, I heard on a tape this individual say he wanted to kill Bob Smith. Now, they're not playing the tape. They're not cooperating it. They're taking this one statement and they're giving an indictment. Now say the discovery comes, you play the discovery, no such tape existed. You have to fight that, obviously, at, at you know the trial level and the pretrial level, but the damage is already done. You're indicted. You're arrested. You, if you're bonded out, you had to pull up, put up bail. Look at the damage that could be done by somebody lying, all because they wanted to target somebody, or all because they just wanted to wrap a case up and just solve the case. It's... If that isn't disturbing, I don't know. We got a problem because the mere concept of that should really wake some people up and make them really understand how easy it is to get indicted and how these things could go south if you don't have honorable law enforcement officials, investigators, uh, people on the state side, people on the government side. If you don't have ethical, morally grounded individuals and people who just want to target somebody, the damage they could do, they could pretty much do what they want. That shows it right there. You want to set somebody up, you could lie, write it down, submit it to the grand jury, sign off that you're the witness to it, and that's it. You'll get your indictment. That's a scary, scary thing. And it does irreparable damage. Even when you... Say you win. Say you go to trial and you win. You still lose in a sense. You still lose. I mean, obviously you won. You won your life. That's phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But you shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. You went for all kinds of money, all kinds of time, all kinds of emotional drainage, physical. I'm sure it affects people physically. I mean, it's endless. It's a big, giant snowball effect. And the threshold that has to be met to get somebody indicted is minuscule and somehow that's acceptable and it just doesn't add up. I mean, you have somebody like Dr. Phil who even says you can indict a ham sandwich. I mean, and I'm sure that guy, you know, was, uh, you know, talking from a uh, neutral standpoint and he's just analyzing the situation and he's saying it. That really should resonate with people you know I hope those listening who aren't aware of these things just take a moment to take that in and understand what takes place the reality of that's why I always harp on the reality and textbook and things are written textbook that sound really nice and they're painted a certain way and and when you read it you say wow if the justice system worked like that it would be flawless but the problem is that's not the reality of it that's not how it plays out so it's extremely flawed And that's why there's so many wrongfully convicted people. Because these things do exist. This isn't something that's made up. These issues are real. So, that's it for today. It's a little after 2 a.m. on the East Coast. So, I think I'm going to call it quits and wrap it up. And I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Until next time.